do the similar. So thanks, Michael. Uh, before Michael speaks, Jacinta will read the Bible for us. Hi everyone, my name is Jacinta and today I have the privilege of reading from God's word for us. Before I do, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for making yourself known to us and showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. Teach us through your word and equip us for every good work for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So today's Bible reading comes from Matthew 5, um, uh, verses 1 to 12, and you can find that on page 968 of your church Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep that uh, passage open in front of you, and happy Lunar New Year uh, to everyone as well. Uh, but as we keep that passage in front of us, let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding Him. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear Your Word with our ears, but to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. To the glory of Your great name. Amen. Now today I want to explain why Christianity is simultaneously both the best and the worst thing that can happen to you. But before I get to that, I want to start by asking you, what are the best things in life? What are the things that make for a happy life? And while you're thinking about that, I want to tell you about a, uh, a show that I watched about a decade ago now, a TV program, back when we used to have TV, um, the surprising title of Making Marrickville Happy. Now, I was intrigued because at that time I lived pretty close to Marrickville over in the inner west, and of course now it's the home of the, uh, the PM. I do wonder if its mood's improved. Why Marrickville? Why was Marrickville singled out for this particular program? Well, according to a Deakin University study, Marrickville was the most miserable suburb in Australia. And so the show followed eight sad Marrickvillians around and tried to make them happier. 
mostly by getting them to be thankful and to smile at strangers and to be generous and to forgive people and to start singing groups and to contemplate their own mortality, which sounds a lot like church to me, but they didn't invite them to church. This is what they tried to get them to do. Now, I actually think this is very good practical advice for improving your own overall happiness. And what's really insightful about this is that it shows us that the things we ordinarily think are the paths to happiness and fulfillment, things like fame and success and wealth and power, the things that we actually celebrate as a culture, that these things don't really make for, what, for, for the good things in life. These don't, in, in the end, turn out to be the best things in life. We spend a great deal of time dedicating ourselves to these material things, and yet they do not deliver on what they promise. We think that happy are the strong, the wealthy, the influential, the sexy, and the confident. That's our equation. But let me tell you, from my experience of living in the wealthiest suburb in Australia, misery with a mansion and a yacht is still misery. In fact, sometimes it's worse because the disillusionment and the hollow feeling is so great. People have dedicated their lives to achieving these things. And yet when they get them, they find life to be hollow and meaningless. And at least what makes Marrickville happy shows that. It showed that very well. It showed us that it's the quality of our relationships that's far more important as a measure of our lives than our LinkedIn profiles or an investment portfolios. Now, it's an occupational hazard for me that I go to a lot of funerals, and nobody mentions your LinkedIn profile in their eulogy, believe me. It's a wise person who has worked out that it's relationships that, what, that are what matters. But it's saying that our connectedness and our relationships to other, with others are the best things in life, any comfort to us, because if we know anything, it's that our relationships are actually very hard. And they are a source of great pain as well as great joy, of great anxiety as well as of support, of great distress and disappointment as well as great hope. The best things that can happen to you are to do with our relationships, but our relationships can be very fragile, difficult and tenuous. That's why Christmas is such an ambivalent festival for us, isn't it? The sociologists are even telling us that we live in a time of unprecedented loneliness. Evidence not just of strained relationships, but of the absence of relationships completely. The failure to have any meaningful connections. What's most distressing is, in fact, it's the 18 to 24-year-old group that are reporting record levels of loneliness. They are the loneliest group in our society. Now, I'm aware that these may not be simply theoretical statements for you, but realities that you know all too well, which is a good point for us to turn to Jesus of Nazareth and his unique take on human happiness that we heard read for us just now. And so I want to turn with you to uh, the words that are recorded for us in the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, some of the most famous words that Jesus ever said from his Sermon on the Mount, they call his Sermon on the Mount. And it's the famous speech that some of us may know best from Monty Python's version, right? Monty Python's version, but just to let you know, the cheesemakers are not mentioned at all 
in the original version. Thank you for that pity laugh. Now, Jesus delivers here his own happiness manifesto. But it's quite a shock to read it because it overturns everything we think about what makes for a happy human life. The word blessed or blessed, by the way, roughly translated out of older English, more formal English, means happy or fortunate. I don't want to say lucky, but fortunate might be, well, might be, uh, might be more accurate. It's the opposite of being cursed, happy. So who does Jesus think are actually happy in this life? Well, it's quite a motley crew, isn't it? This group of the blessed. There's the poor in spirit, for example, in verse 3. Those who suffer not, not from material poverty, but from an inner crisis of the soul. Or those who mourn, in verse 4. Those who've experienced grief and loss and all that goes with it. The very things we can't bear to look at because we dread them so much. But here, the mourning that Jesus is speaking of, the grief that he's talking about, is not just the grief at a personal loss, the loss of someone precious, but the sorrow of a person for their own sins before God. Or the meek in verse 5. In what animal do you think of when you think of meekness? The mouse, of course, that scurries behind the curtains in an effort to get away, is full of timidity, not with braggadocio and self-confidence. It's quite a reversal of who we would imagine would be the happy ones, isn't it? You can't imagine the Instagram account of this group. There's more to come, for in verse 6, there's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They know something is wrong with the world, deeply wrong. There's a lack of justice in it. And they yearn for a time when things will be put to rights. And then there's the merciful. Those who do not exact vengeance when they can. There's the pure in heart. And the peacemakers. These are people who recognize how imperfect human affairs are. And how a world is not marked by mercy or purity or peace. More often we see, as well we know, just opening the newspaper, war and severity and debauchery. It's a remarkable group of people, this happy group, this blessed bunch. We might see them as powerless, as unattractive, as sad, lacking in confidence and self-esteem. What they have in common is that they are most evidently at the moment not happy. They're a group of people whose tears are palpable. They're not happy with themselves. They're not happy or satisfied with the way things are in the world. But that is not all. For there are a group of people who are taking that unhappiness in a particular direction, that dissatisfaction in a particular place. They are calling out to God himself for help. These are people who know that if anyone can right the wrongs, even their own wrongs, is the God of heaven and earth, the God of mercy and justice, the God whose name is love. Who are the blessed? Who are the happy? Bizarrely, it's this group of people who, who don't seem happy, but they are longing for God to come and change the world and themselves. Well, okay, we might say, Jesus, look, it's all very well to assert that these are happy, but how do we know this isn't just a piece of fake news? 
a, a thing that's so obviously not true that you can only make people believe it's true by saying it over and over again. Trump style. Why are these people, people happy? What reason do we have for believing that it's so? Well, Jesus gives plenty of reasons. Each time he nominates one of these conditions for true happiness, he gives an explanation of why it's so. By the way, I don't think we should understand each of these groups as a, a distinct group, as if you know, there's the merciful over in that corner and the peacemakers over here and the, uh, the meek, have kind of, they haven't even bothered to come in because they're a bit afraid. It, they're not, it, it's a picture, a collective, collaborative picture, isn't it? A kind of collage that paints a great whole. Each of these is a different way of pointing to the same thing. And so here's some of the reasons that these people are so blessed. Well, we see that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They gain citizenship in God's own country. We see that they will be comforted. Their tears will be wiped away. Their sorrows will be no more. They will inherit the earth. Everything that is will belong to them as it had belonged to the first human beings. They will be shown mercy these people of great personal sorrow, grieving for the world and for themselves, their sins will be forgiven and they will be able to live with God and with his people. And more than that, they will see God himself. They'll not just hear of him as of a rumor. They will know him. They will stand in front of his glory face to face. And indeed, they will be called sons of God, part of God's own royal family, accepted and hold, held close by him. These reasons all have in common that they are about the future. In fact, they are promises that Jesus gives here for a restored and reconciled world, a world in which relationships are mended and healed, a world in which there is true loving community. And this is a promise that God will act to bring about these things, that he will deliver on justice and peace and mercy, and that those who long for these things, who see now the disjunct between their experience and their hopes, will actually have their hopes met. And so, they're truly blessed, truly happy, because despite everything, they can rest secure in the hope that God will do as he says. Even their own mistakes and regrets and wrongdoings will not restrict God's promise, for they too will get mercy. Okay, we've seen how who, who, who Jesus thinks is happy and why he thinks they're happy, but you might say, look, this is all enticing and remarkable, but how does it come about? How does this reversal of fortune occur? And this is where the rest of the story of Jesus comes in. It's not an impressive story in many ways. It's the story in one sense of a tragedy. As Christmas reminds us, Jesus came to earth in the meekest of circumstances, born in Bethlehem to parents from out of town Nazareth. He was from the boondocks. He was no city slicker. Through, though his countrymen were looking for a military hero, he refused to take up arms against the Romans. Instead, he walked around saying things like, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. He pointed out the real problem that we all have is that we have a heart that has strayed far from God. And the story of Jesus seems to end in meekness and in mourning. 
In a very real sense, he embodied the words he said here. And he was given a crock of a trial, beaten up and put to death by hanging on the cross. A great disgrace, if ever there was one. His friends, the people who heard the words the first time they were uttered, were shattered and mournful. But the promise of God that Jesus had spoken in these words was still very much alive. Though he looked like just another victim of the brutal world, Jesus walked free from his grave, much to the surprise of his friends and even of his enemies. His death was not then just the execution of a slightly annoying annoying Jewish revolutionary. In his death, Jesus, as God's own son, turned aside God's wrath against sin and evil, making peace with God a reality for us, making an offer of mercy from God available to those who wish to accept it. He revealed just how much God hates evil, just how much God too longs for justice, thirsts for righteousness, how that too is in God's heart. He showed how much God loves us that he would go to such an effort to destroy all that is evil on the cross. In his death, all of God's promises are guaranteed. It's Jesus' death death and resurrection, the missing piece of the puzzle here, the puzzle of Jesus' words. They make sense of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. They are blessed. They are happy because they know they have an answered prayer. They know they do not suffer without purpose. In other words, they have hope. This is what makes them truly blessed. In fact, where happy is, is too weak a word for them because this hope turns happiness into something better than happiness. And that is joy, real joy. You might ask, what kind of a state of mind is this? It's an extraordinary state of mind to live in the present time with the assurance that God's kingdom will come, that justice will one day be done, that you have forgiveness, that you have peace with God, that you have the freedom to show mercy to others, to love even your enemies, that you have acceptance, the acceptance of your creator, that nothing that stands against you can ever touch you. That's some kind of happiness. In fact, as I say, happiness is not enough to describe it. For those who follow Jesus, it's only a taste of the happiness, the joy that is to come. Now, I hope that this stage that you're at least intrigued by what Jesus is saying here. And I hope you'll kind of take them away and these words and And ponder them, contemplate them, because they're words that people have mulled over for centuries. And they you can squeeze them and squeeze them and still you get good good juice from them. It's the kind of message that takes some thinking over because it so overturns the way we think about our lives and the way we live them. In fact, it may at first sound like very bad news, which is why I've called today's sermon why Christianity is the best and the worst thing that can happen to you. How could this be? What could I possibly mean? Well, what if I'm not meek? 
or poor in spirit? What if I do not mourn for my sins? Well, that appears to be the condition of being blessed that Jesus names here. Jesus is saying, if this is not you, if this is not who we are, then the kingdom of heaven doesn't really belong to us. That our only access to the future is by being like this group, group of people. While still we imagine that we are the kings of our own lives, the master of our fates, the captains of our souls, the kingdom of heaven is not for us. While still we imagine ourselves decent and upright, while yet we congratulate ourselves for our achievements, while ever we imagine our lives consisting in the value of our possessions or the diversity of our experiences, the wonderful places we've traveled to, our lasting happiness is but an illusion. The message of Jesus is actually a rude shock to our egos. It shows us that we are not the center of the universe. It exposes the things that we like to lean on as broken and unreliable. And it certainly doesn't make us popular. It won't make you popular with those who think those things are precious. In fact, in some times and places, it results in open hostility. But when we challenge the, the ultimacy of the things around us, people don't like it. It's disturbing. Which is why Jesus talks about following him as like losing your life or taking up your cross. So it's a good question to ask, why would anyone sane follow him? Well, they'd follow him because he's right. He's right about the things we usually trust in. They really don't work. They let us down. Even if we've grasped the insights of making Marrick feel happy, that relationships are really what's most important in human life, we find that we make a mess of those too. And increasingly, I'm meeting in my ministry people who've realized this. One guy in my church, he's pursued success, and he's done some remarkable things. From the outside, he's a very impressive individual. But he says that he got to a point in his life where he realized that he'd been pursuing the mist. What he was pursuing was ephemeral. It did not satisfy. It was not real. It did not make, it did not improve his relationships indeed. But secondly, to adapt some words that the missionary and martyr Jim Elliot once said, you are no fool if you give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. With Jesus, we exchange hope in ourselves for a hope in the God who promises mercy and justice, peace and new life. And however ever painful that exchange might be, it makes complete sense. We lay before Jesus everything we have, but in him we get more than we can possibly imagine. One of the most famous of all Christian songs is, and I'm sure you could shout out what you think that is, it's Amazing Grace, isn't it? it? As many of you might know, it was written in 1772 by John Newton, who had once been a slave trader, became a Christian, didn't immediately leave slave trading behind, by the way, but after a few years decided that uh, the, the trade in people was deeply 
uh, sickening to God, as it indeed it is, and became a militant abolitionist, repented of his slave trading because of his faith. The first two lines of the song, I'm sure you can recite. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Have you ever balked at the word wretch when you've sung it? It stands out, doesn't it? It contains a sting. It has a sort of desperation to it. Who do you think of when you think of the wretched? You don't think of people with great educations living in lovely houses, in luxury, with great jobs, traveling the world. And yet, says John Newton, amazing grace comes to the wretch. It's so, it, it, it stands out so much that I once heard a singer, a modern singer, in the grip of modern notions of self-esteem, change the word wretch to the word soul so that it didn't sound so harsh. It was more palatable. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a soul like me. Of course, the trouble was, it's then not grace, is it? <laughs> it's then not God's free gift to the wretch. But John Newton knew. He knew that the good news is amazing because it tells the painful truth about me. It's so good because it's actually bad in the first place. I now have hope because I've lost all hope in myself. The gospel doesn't tell me that I'm okay and you're okay and God's okay and the world's okay and it's all okay. It tells me that in Jesus, everything will be better than okay. But it sure ain't okay now. So the question we're left with today is, do you want to join the ranks of the blessed? Will you hear Jesus' call to come to God as one poor in spirit, mourning for your sins and hungry for righteousness? For God has promised a new order of things from which the darkness and of sin and death will be banished and in which his justice, his mercy and his love will surely reign. And in the hope of that, there is great joy. Amen.